Blog Talk Radio. Mr. President and distinguished delegates, 27 years ago, as Emperor of Ethiopia, I mounted the rostrum in Geneva, Switzerland, to address the League of Nations and to appeal for relief from the destruction which had been unleashed against my defenseless nation by the fascist invader. I spoke then both to and for the conscience of the world. My words went unheeded, but history testifies to the accuracy of the warning that I gave in 1936. Today I stand before the world organization which has succeeded to the mantle Guarded by its discredited predecessor. In this body is enshrined the principle of collective security which I unsuccessfully invoked at Geneva. Here in this assembly reposes the best, perhaps the last hope for the peaceful survival of mankind. In 1936, I declared that it was not the covenant of the League that was at stake, but international morality. Undertakings, I said then, are of little worth if the will to keep them is lacking. The Charter of the United Nations expresses the noblest aspirations of man. Abjuration of force in the settlement of disputes between states, the assurance of human rights and fundamental freedoms for all without distinction as to race, sex, language or religion, the safeguarding of international peace and security. But these two, as were the phrases of the covenant, are only words. Their value depends wholly on our will to observe and honor them and give them content and meaning. The preservation of peace and the guaranteeing of man's basic freedoms and rights require courage and eternal vigilance. Courage to speak and act and if necessary suffer and die for truth and justice, eternal vigilance that the least transgression of international morality shall not go undetected and unremedied. These lessons must be learned anew by each succeeding generation, and that generation is fortunate indeed 
which learns from other than its own bitter experience. This organization and each of its members bear a crushing and awesome responsibility to absorb the wisdom of history and to apply it to the problems of the present in order that future generations may be born and live and die in peace. The record of the United Nations during the few short years of its life affords mankind a solid basis for encouragement and hope for the future. The United Nations has dared to act when the League dared not in Palestine, in Korea, in Suez, and in the Congo. There is not one among us today who does not conjecture upon the reaction of this body when motives and actions are called into question. The opinion of this organization today acts as a powerful influence upon the decisions of its members. The spotlight of world opinion focused by the United Nations upon the transgressions of the renegades of human society has thus far proved an effective safeguard against unchecked aggression and unrestricted violation of human rights. The United Nations continues to act as the forum where nations whose interests clash may lay their cases before world opinion. It still provides the essential escape valve without which the slow build-up of pressures would have long since resulted in catastrophic explosions. Its actions and decisions have speeded the achievement of freedom by many peoples on the continents of Africa and Asia. Its efforts have contributed to the advancement of the standard of living of people in all corners of the world. For this, all men must give thanks. As I stand here today, how faint, how remote are the memories of 1936. How different in these times are the attitudes of men and women. We then existed in an atmosphere of suffocating pessimism. Today, cautious yet buoyant optimism is the prevailing spirit. But each one of us here knows that what has been accomplished is not enough. The United Nations judgments have been and continue to be subject to frustration as individual member states have ignored its pronouncements and disregarded its recommendations. The organization's sinews have been weakened as member states have avoided their obligations to it. The authority of the organization has been mocked as individual member states have proceeded in violation of its commands to pursue their own aims and ends. The troubles which continue to plague us virtually all arise among member states of the organization, but the organization remains impotent 
to enforce acceptable solutions. As the maker and enforcer of the international law, what the United Nations has achieved still falls regrettably short of our goal of an international community of nations. This does not mean that the United Nations has failed. I have lived too long to cherish many illusions about the essential high-mindedness of men when brought into stark confrontation with the issue of control over their security and their property interests. Not even now, when so much is at hazard, would many nations willingly entrust their destinies to other hands. Yet, this is the ultimatum presented to us. Secure the conditions whereby men will entrust their security to a larger entity or risk annihilation. Persuade men that their salvation rests in the subordination of national and local interests to the interests of humanity or endanger man's future. These are the objectives. Yesterday unobtainable, today essential, which we must labor to achieve. Until this is accomplished, mankind's future remains hazardous and permanent peace a matter for speculation. There is no single magic formula, no one simple step, no words, whether written into the organization's charter or into a treaty between states, which can automatically guarantee to us what we seek. Peace is a day-to-day problem, the product of a multitude of events and judgments. Peace is not an is, it is a becoming. We cannot escape the dreadful possibility of catastrophe by miscalculation. But we can reach the right decisions on the myriad subordinate problems which each new day poses. And we can thereby make our contribution and perhaps the most that can be reasonably expected of us right now to the preservation of peace. It is here that the United Nations has served us, not perfectly, but well. And in enhancing the possibilities that the organization may serve us better, we serve and bring closer our most cherished goals. I would mention briefly today two particular issues which are of deep concern to all men disarmament, and the establishment of true equality among men. Disarmament has become the urgent imperative of our time. I do not say this because I equate the absence of arms to peace, or because I believe that bringing an end to the nuclear arms race automatically guarantees peace, or because the elimination of nuclear warheads from the arsenal of the world will bring in its wake that change in attitude requisite to the peaceful settlement of disputes between nations. Disarmament is vital today, quite simply, because of the immense 
self-destructive capacity of which men dispose. Ethiopia supports the Atmospheric Nuclear Test Ban Treaty as a step towards this goal, even though only a partial step. Nations can still perfect weapons of mass destruction by underground testing. There is no guarantee against the sudden, unannounced resumption of testing in the atmosphere. The real significance of the treaty is that it admits of a tacit stalemate between the nations which negotiated it. A stalemate which recognizes the blunt, unavoidable fact that none would emerge from the total destruction which would be the lot of all in a nuclear war. A stalemate which affords us and the United Nations a breathing space in which to act. Here is our opportunity and our challenge. If the nuclear powers are prepared to declare a truce, let us seize the moment to strengthen the institutions and procedures which will serve as the means for the pacific settlements of disputes among men. Conflicts between nations will continue to arise. The real issue is whether they are to be resolved by force or by resorting to peaceful methods and procedures administered by impartial institutions. This very organization itself is the greatest such institution and it is in a more powerful United Nations that we seek and it is here that we shall find the assurance of a peaceful future. Were a real and effective disarmament achieved and the funds now spent in the arms race devoted to the improvement of man's state, were we to concentrate only on the peaceful uses of nuclear knowledge, how vastly and in how short a time might we change the conditions of mankind? This should be our goal. When we talk of the equality of man, we find also a challenge and an opportunity. A challenge to breathe new life into the ideals enshrined in the Charter. An opportunity to bring men closer to freedom and true equality, and thus closer to a love of peace. The goal of the equality of man which we seek is the antithesis of the exploitation of one people by another with which the pages of history and in particular those written on the African and Asian continents speak at such length. Exploitation thus viewed has many faces. But whatever guise it assumes, this evil is to be shunned where it does not exist and crushed where it does. It is the sacred duty of this organization to ensure that the dream of equality is finally realized for all men to whom it is still denied and to guarantee that exploitation is not reincarnated in other forms in places whence it has already been banished.
as a free Africa has emerged during the past decade, a fresh attack has been launched against exploitation, wherever it still exists. And in that interaction, so common to history, this in turn has stimulated and encouraged the remaining dependent peoples to renewed efforts to throw off the yoke which has oppressed them and its claim as their birthright, the twin ideals of liberty and equality. This very struggle is a struggle to establish peace. And until victory is assured, that brotherhood and understanding which nourish and give life to peace can be but partial and incomplete. Last May in Addis Ababa, I convened a meeting of heads of African states and governments. In three days, the 32 nations represented at that conference demonstrated to the world that when the will and the determination exist, nations and peoples of diverse backgrounds can and will work together in unity to the achievement of common goals and the assurance of that equality and brotherhood which we desire. On the question of racial discrimination, the Addis Ababa Conference taught to those who will learn this further lesson, that until the philosophy which holds one race superior and another inferior is finally and permanently discredited and abandoned, that until there are no longer first-class and second-class citizens of any nation, that until the color of a man's skin is of no more significance than the color of his eyes, that until the basic human rights are equally guaranteed to all without regard to race, that until that day, the dream of lasting peace and world citizenship and the rule of international morality will remain but a fleeting illusion to be pursued but never attained. And until the ignoble and unhappy regimes that hold our brothers and sisters in Angola, in Mozambique and in South Africa in subhuman bondage have been toppled and destroyed until bigotry and prejudice and malicious and inhuman self-interest have been replaced by understanding and tolerance and goodwill until all Africans stand and speak as free beings equal in the eyes of all men as they are in the eyes of heaven until that day, the African continent will not know peace. We Africans will fight if necessary. And we know that we shall win as we are confident in the victory of good over evil. The United Nations has done much, both directly and indirectly speed the disappearance of discrimination and oppression from the earth. 
without the opportunity to focus world opinion on Africa and Asia, which this organization provides, the goal for many might still lie ahead and the struggle would have taken far longer. For this, we are truly grateful. But more can be done. The basis of racial discrimination and colonialism has been economic and it is with economic weapons that these evils have been and can be overcome. In pursuance of resolutions adopted at the Addis Ababa Summit Conference, African states have undertaken certain measures in the economic field which, if adopted by all member states of the United Nations, would soon reduce intransigence to reason. I ask today for adherence to these measures by every nation represented here, which is truly devoted to the principles enunciated in the Charter. If we are to survive, this organization must survive. To survive, it must be strengthened. Its executive must be vested with great authority. The means for the enforcement of its decisions must be fortified and if they do not exist, they must be devised. Procedures must be established to protect the small and the weak when threatened by the strong and the mighty. All nations which fulfill the conditions of membership must be admitted and allowed to sit in this assemblage. Equality of representation must be assured in each of its organs. The possibilities which exist in the United Nations provide the medium whereby the hungry may be fed, the naked clothed, the ignorant instructed must be seized on and exploited for the flower of peace is not sustained by poverty and want. To achieve this requires courage and confidence. The courage I believe we possess. The confidence must be created create confidence, we must act courageously. The great nations of the world would do well to remember that in the modern age, even their own fates are not wholly in their hands. Peace demands the united efforts of us all. Who can foresee what spark might ignite the fuse? not only the small and the weak who must scrupulously observe their obligations to the United Nations and to each other, unless the smaller nations are accorded their proper voice in the settlement of world problems, unless the equality which Africa and Asia have struggled to attain is reflected in expanded membership in the institutions which make up the United Nations, confidence will come just that much harder. Unless the rights of the least of men are as assiduously protected as those of the greatest, the seeds of confidence
will fall on barren soil. The stake of each one of us is identical, life or death. We all wish to live. We all seek a world in which men are freed of the burdens of ignorance, poverty, hunger and disease. And we shall all be hard pressed to escape the deadly reign of nuclear fallout should catastrophe overtake us. When I spoke at Geneva in 1936, there was no precedent for a head of state addressing the League of Nations. I am neither the first, nor will I be the last head of state to address the United Nations. But only I have addressed both the League and this organization in this capacity. The problems which confront us today are equally unprecedented. They have no counterpart in human experience. Men search the pages of history for solutions, for precedents, but there are none. This then is the ultimate challenge. Where are we to look for our survival, for the answers to the questions which have never before been posed? We must look first to Almighty God, who has raised man above the animals and endowed him with intelligence and reason. We must put our faith in him, that he will not desert us or permit us to destroy humanity which he created in his image. And we must look into ourselves, into the depth of our souls. We must become something we have never been and for which our education and experience and environment have ill-prepared us. We must become bigger than we have been, more courageous, greater in spirit, larger in outlook. We must become members of a new race, overcoming petty prejudice, owing our ultimate allegiance, not to nations, but to our fellow men within the human community. The human community. The human community.
Welcome, sir. Good to meet you, sir. Welcome, sir. I 
must begin by thanking my hosts, the Obi Jackson Foundation, and specifically Dr. and Mrs. Ernest Obiegesi, who have brought me all the way from Nairobi, Kenya, to be present this evening with you in Okija, in Anambra. I'm acutely aware that this is a cultural event, and it gladdens my heart, therefore, that present in this assembly is the Oni of Ife all the way from Odudua land. I'm also aware uh, that Igwe, Emeka, and Namdi Ekezie, who is the traditional ruler of Ibo, is present here in this assembly. And it's also gladdened my heart that I have the opportunity this evening of being present in a land that I became aware of as a young man. I remember over 25 years ago when I started going to school, I heard about this land of Ibo from great writers such as Chinua Achebe. If it was not Chinua Achebe that I was reading, I was reading Flora Nuapa. And if it was not Flora, I was reading the poetry of Christopher Okigbo. And if I went beyond Igbo land, if I was not reading Okibo, I was reading Cyprian Equency. And if I was not reading Equency, I was reading Woleso Inca. So that even in those early days, I was able to recognize that what a young man cannot see standing on the Iroko tree an old man will see sitting down. I remember those days with nostalgia. And I also remember that it was not only in the realm of literature that I met great Nigerians. The first person to teach me English through his book was another great Nigeria, Ogundipe. So that Nigeria and Eboland has always been present in our lives in Africa. And when we started talking about the independence of Africa, if one did not read the great Zik of Africa, Namdi Azikiwe, one was not reading history. So there is a sense in which Nigeria and Eboland has always been present. I remember not once, not twice, it being said in jest that if you go to any part of the world and you do not find an Igbo, run away from that place because that is not a good place. 
and that is why, therefore, I'm able to say when I stand before you here in the presence of greatness that Nigeria has always remained alive. If with the departure of Chinua Achebe or Flora Nwapa, the world thought Nigeria could no longer produce literature, our, your own Chimama and Ngozi Adichie has emerged in the world. And if Hollywood and Bollywood thought that we could not produce theater, the great Pete Edochie and Yul Edochie have emerged from this land. And did not stop from Yul or Pete Edochie. We, on a daily basis, we are marveling about Genevieve Naji. And we are not only marveling about Genevieve Naji, Patience Oziakwo is also in our minds. And if we go further into the land of Odudua, Olu Jacobs is also present in our minds. So Nigeria remains great because Nigeria has been the cradle of culture in the continent of Africa. You know, when one thinks about Nigeria, one knows that Nigeria is the greatest nation on the continent of Africa. If one were to be dramatic about it, at the risk of repeating what others have said, one would say that when Nigeria catches a cold, all other African countries get cancer. But we are not going to be melodramatic about it. We are simply going to recognize that today we are present in this assembly courtesy of the O.B. Jackson Foundation to celebrate culture. And culture is not anything that is fossilized in the past. Culture is dynamic. It changes on a daily basis. But it's true that unless we are wedded to our cultural values, then we as a people, whether we are in Okija, in Nigeria, or in Nairobi, Kenya, or in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, or in Dakar, Senegal, we as the people of the continent of Africa will never be recognized for who we are. For those who know say that as long as the lions do not have historians, it is the exploits of the hunters that will be celebrated rather than the bravery of the lions. Today, therefore, we come here to celebrate culture and we come to celebrate culture at the behest of the O.B. Jackson Foundation, an event that started five years ago. It is no longer an event. It has graduated into a festival, and I dare say that it must even have graduated to a movement. That is why we have men and women who have been drawn from different parts of Africa to be present here this evening at midnight to celebrate culture. I have sat down and I've listened and I've understood and I now say that I've reached the stage in my submission to you to say Ndibo Ekenemunu
And now that I've saluted the evils who are present in this assembly, let us remind ourselves why it is that we are celebrating culture. You know, there is a great and immortal Kiswahili saying that he or she who does not recognize his or her culture will be eternally a slave. And we are here, therefore, to remind ourselves that the time has come for Africa and Africans to demand of the world that we can no longer afford the misfortune of communing with other civilizations as if we are children of a lesser God. We have come here to tell ourselves that we can no longer apologize for our condition. We have come here to remind ourselves that we can no longer be nostalgic of the past without projecting into the future. We have come here in order to celebrate the future as informed by the past. And that is why the face of Okija is the re-energization of our resolve and the recognition that we must side forward in the recognition that Africa is the cradle of humanity. Times without number, those who are in the business of revising history have attempted to deny that fact, but is now recognized beyond peradventure that humanity and civilization started here. When Europe was still dwelling in the caves, there were organized kingdoms in this part of the world. When Europe did not know what astronomy, astronomy was, the doggone were speaking to the civilizations of the world. Africa is the cradle of civilization, and Africa is where we must be. But you know, you know, our civilization was rudely interrupted. It was a rude interruption that saw some of our men and women being spirited away into other parts of the world. If Europe is what it is, it is because of Africans. If America is what it is, it is because of Africans. If Latin America is what it is, it is because of Africans. If the Greeks are great philosophers, it's because the great philosophers were in the land of the Dudua. If the Jews have the gift of prophecy, it was because of the evil of Africa. And I dare say, I hear the evil say that they came from Israel. No, it is the Israelites that moved away from evil land into Israel. I hear the Igbo say that they worship like the Jews. No, it is the Jews that worship like the Igbo. And I say this not only and not to romanticize our culture and our tradition, but to remind us that for a long time we have judged ourselves too harshly that the time has now come that we must recognize ourselves for who we are. You know, I told you that our civilization was interrupted, but even when it was interrupted, we were always alive to the fact 
that we must regain our self-esteem. And indeed, we regained our self-esteem. And today, as I speak to you, Africa has 55 artificial boundaries. We have come here today to dramatize the artificiality of those boundaries so that we may have that day, that day when I can move from Nairobi, Kenya, to Lagos in Nigeria without the necessity of a visa. I look forward to those days. I look forward to the days when I can move from Johannesburg in South Africa to Bangui in Central African Republic without the necessity of a visa. I look forward to the day when I shall move from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, and I only have one currency to contend with, not 38 currency. I look forward to that day. I look forward to that day when a goosey soup will be consumed in West Africa as it is consumed in Nigeria. I look forward to that day. I look forward to the day when Hollywood and Bollywood will no longer have a place in our television and Nollywood and Riverwood and Bongowood would be what we watch. I look forward to those days. I look forward to the days when we shall celebrate Chimama and Ngozi Adichie and not other authors. I look forward to that day. And I'm reminding ourselves and the young men and women who are present in, those, in this assembly that that can happen and that will happen, but that we must work at it. Oh, fellow Africans, how it pains me times without number when I see young men and women moving from Banjul in the Gambia, from Cotonou and Lome, from Monrovia and Freetown, from Accra in Ghana, from Lagos crossing the Sahara and meeting their death in the Mediterranean in search of some greener pasture, yet the pasture is greener on this side. I look forward to the day when Africans will be treated with dignity at every airport in the world. I look forward to that day. And that is why we are here in Okija to remind ourselves that we have the ability, that we have both the intellectual wherewithal, that we have the capability and the capacity not only of demonstrating to ourselves but demonstrating to the world that we can achieve it. And Okija in a manner of speaking is the beginning of that journey. A journey that started five years ago. You know, I do not possess the prophetic gift of the Agugus of Iboland, but I am able to look at the future. And when I look at that future, and I use the face of Okija as my vantage point. I see many things. I see Africa rising. I see Africa rising in agriculture. I see jollof rice and rice that is consumed in Nigeria, being produced in Nigeria and being produced in Ghana, 
and being produced in Senegal, I see that. I see arms and plantains being produced in Nairobi, Kenya, and in Ethiopia. I see that. I see the beautiful clothes that are worn by Nigerians not being made in the Netherlands, but being made in Kaduna in Nigeria. I see that. I see the beautiful things that are being done in this part of the world happening here. This morning, when I had the privilege and advantage at once of visiting the OB Jackson Women and Children's Hostel, and I saw the state of the art, and I saw how lifeless children were regaining life, I am convinced that time is coming when no Nigerian will visit the United States of America to receive treatment. I see and look forward to the day when no African will go to India or to Dubai to receive treatment. I look forward to those days. I look forward to the day when we will not go to Dubai to buy anything. We will come to Lagos in Nigeria. We will come to Anambra. We will come to Anisha. I see those days. And one need not be a Jewish prophet nor be related to one to realize that that is a possibility. It is written on the wall that as long as we have our own self-esteem, history has demonstrated not once, not twice, but times without number that when a people make a decision and make a resolve that they are going to achieve, then they cannot be stopped. Okija and the face of Okija and this cultural festival is a dramatization and a demonstration to ourselves that we can achieve it. But if we are going to achieve it, we will achieve it because of the young men and women who are present in this assembly. You know, throughout history, countries and places have changed because young men and women have taken a resolve. So today, I am urging all of us who are present here to make a solemn vow, to make a solemn vow that we will from today only seek the things that require effort by making effort. We make a solemn vow that we will not run away from our countries, that we will develop our countries, and that we are not children of a lesser God. I am asking all of us who are present here to tell the world that whether it is in engineering, we have the capacity to build our roads. I am reminding each one of us here to tell the world that if it is in medicine, we have the capacity to treat ourselves. I am reminding those who are present here to tell the world that if it is in agriculture, we are capable of feeding ourselves, that if it is in technology, we are capable of succeeding in that area so that when we meet with the rest of civilization, whether it's the Chinese or the English or the Americans, they will be able to say, lo and behold, the Negroes are capable of delivering and that the Negroes are capable of producing and that the Negroes are not children of a lesser God. I have no doubt in my mind when I look at those who are present here 
when I look at the Oni of Ife, when I look at the Igwe, when I look at the professionals who are present here, that today is a great day. It is a great day because we are talking to each other at midnight. And when you talk to each other at midnight, you, the evil, are in the business of generating proverbs. One of the great proverbs that you generated is that when one sees a frog coming into daylight, then you know that something is after its life. It is midnight, but courtesy of technology, there is daylight in this assembly. And we who are the frogs, we are out here because there is something that is after our life. That thing is the realization that if we are not faithful to our cultural pursuits, then we will not realize what we deserve. At midnight, men and women do not talk for too long. At midnight, we only remind ourselves that this is a great cultural event. At midnight, we only remind ourselves that each one of us has a role to play. At midnight, we only remind ourselves that we younger people must listen to the older people. At midnight, we remind ourselves that the Igbo say that those children who wash their hands will eat with kings. At midnight, we remind ourselves that our mothers are great. That is why you Igbos name your children Neka, because mother is great. At midnight, we remind ourselves that we are going forward. At midnight, we are reminding ourselves that the 55 countries of Africa are artificial. At midnight, we are reminding ourselves that we have the ability. At midnight, we are recognizing that Africa will be great. At midnight, we remind ourselves that Africa will be great because Okija has started it. At midnight, we are reminding ourselves that the evils are once again beginning to regenerate African energy. At midnight, we are reminding ourselves that we can do it. At midnight, we are reminding ourselves that we are the solution to our problems. At midnight, we are recognizing that we must do it and that if we don't do it, it will be done on us. At midnight, we therefore stop. God bless. Feminism was created by the CIA. Feminism was created by the CIA. The woman who was the main proponent of feminism. Gloria Steinem. Gloria Steinem was a CIA agent, and the CIA financed Gloria Steinem's magazine. I forget the Us. first. The Us magazine yeah. was financed by the CIA. I, I believe it was Us. I'm, it I'm might not, have been Us. Yeah. Regardless yeah, of the name, yeah, I know what you're her talking publication about. was financed by the CIA. This is documented, and it was proven. And why did the CIA introduce feminism? The CIA introduced, it, introduced feminism to empower the black female and to disempower the black male. See, the empowerment of our sisters is not an evil. Her being more educated than the black man is not necessarily an evil. Her bringing home more pay than the black man is not necessarily an evil. 
it is the interpretation she makes with regard to why she out-earns her mate. It's the interpretation she makes to why she out-educates her mate. It's not until the black woman swallows the American power structure's narrative as to why the black male is disenfranchised does it become a problem. Because if my wife out-earns me and out-educates me, that's not an issue if she can still respect my manhood. But because we live in a capitalist empire, your worth as a male is automatically translated into your take-home pay. So they look at what is your man worth? How much does he bring home? They don't look at all the other ingredients that make a strong black male. We get reduced to a dollar. And why is that ironic? Because when we first showed up in Jamestown, Virginia, on August the 20th of 1619, we were auctioned off. And our worth as men was determined based on our what? Physical output. Our worth in the NBA today is determined by what? Our physical output. Our worth in the NFL today is determined by what? Our physical output. And unfortunately, our worth to black woman today is determined by our physical output. How much can you bring home? Get out of town by Sunday. I say if they don't get out of town, we kill the men, we kill the women, we kill the children, we kill the babies, we kill the blind, we kill the cripple, we kill the crazy, we kill the faggots, we kill the lesbians. I said, God damn it, we kill them all. Is that all right? Kill them all. Why kill the women? First, why kill the babies? They're just little innocent blue-eyed babies. Because God damn it, they're going to grow up one day to rule your babies. Kill them now. Why kill the women in South Africa? I said kill the women because the women are the military manufacturing center. And every nine months they lay down on their backs and reinforcement rolls out from between their legs. So shut down the military manufacturing center by killing the white woman. Why kill the elder crackers? The old crepit crackers in South Africa. How in the hell you think they got old? They got old, oppressing and killing black people. Yes, sir. I said, kill the cripple, kill the hell for kill God, Kill them all. Kill the faggots. Kill the lesbians. And after you kill them all, I said that day about Mandela to let you know what he really knows about me. Don't know a damn thing. I said, then you go to the goddamn grave and bring them up and kill them a goddamn head. Because they didn't die hard enough. And if you don't have the strength to dig them up after you've done all that work, just go to the grave and shoot in the damn grave. Kill them again. Because they didn't die hard enough. I don't have no respect for Mandela. Your grandman is just a cracker, cotton and you smiling, boy, you shucky. 
fucking and you got it. Pussy nigga need to stop it. You the white man, bitch. You the white man, bitch. You the white man, bitch. I see the white man, bitch. You a pussy ass nigga on some Sambo shit. I'ma keep it 100. You the white man, bitch. Cause your ass kisses serious and you riding his dick. Nigga walk like you talk, like you eat the cracker shit. Boy, you flex up in the hood. I know you scared of your master. We starving out here, but you never jack a cracker. You gon' fight up in the club, kill another nigga quick. Bout to sign a paper begging for some reparation. Every one of y'all scary. Get your unity together. Gucci this, Louis that. Get your economics better. This a house nigga game. A white Jesus fetish. Wear a cross around your neck. That ain't for no Africans. You the white man, bitch. You the white man, bitch. You the white man, bitch. I see the white man, bitch. Buy that Gucci Louis Prada. Bring the white boy cash. Sell his dope. Go to jail. Get his fucking no ass. You the white man, bitch. You the white man, bitch. You the white man, bitch. I see the white man, bitch. Buy that Gucci Louis Prada. Bring the white boy cash. Sell his dope. Go to jail. Get his fucking no ass. Raise the kids on her own Cause his master taught him how to fuck a queen and get gone His master taught him how to call a hoe, call a bitch How to make a batch of baby, keep her slinging that dick You a stone cold asshole, a willy lynch nigga Kiss the A-Rap ass, won't boss up and pull the trigger You a white man bitch, he write the check, you suck his dick Degradate the rap culture while he laughing at this shit Go to church every Sunday cause your master taught you too A black preacher nothing but a white boy too Telling lies about a cracker devil hanging on the cross When they got their fucking story from the myth of hard work You the white man bitch, you the white man bitch You the white man bitch, I see the white man bitch Buy that Gucci Louis Prada, bring the white boy cash Sell his dope, go to jail, get his fucking your ass You the white man bitch, you the white man bitch You the white man bitch, I see the white man bitch Buy that Gucci Louis Prada, bring the white boy cash White girls pledge B-L-A-C-K And your brother's just as bad With that Alpha 5 swag I don't see no white fraternity With hieroglyphic brands But your master pays for your tuition So you learn his history But they got their history From chemist schools of mystery Eat your watermelon You a white man nigga How the fuck you freeze With your brain against the devil's trigger How we let a caveman Give us knowledge on the side His degree the 33 Came from a third eye calcified Where your grocery store Your structure Where your bank where your land, we be satisfied with crumbs coming from the master hand. You the white man, bitch. You the white man, bitch. You the white man, bitch. I see the white man, bitch. Buy that Gucci Louis Prada, bring the white boy cash. Sell his dope, go to jail, get his fucking your ass. You the white man, bitch. You the white man, bitch. You the white man, bitch. I see the white man, bitch. Buy that Gucci Louis Prada, bring the white boy cash. Sell his dope, go to jail, get his fucking your ass. How many of you want to see the black family back together? Black man back with his black woman. There is no woman like the black woman, black man. No woman like the black woman. Don't you let no revolutionary fancy talk. Don't you let no religious fancy talk. No Christianity, no Judaism. Don't you let no Islam, no communism. Don't you let nothing put you with the white man, woman, and you abandon your own woman. This black woman is the best. 
This black woman is the one. The one and only Dr. Barashango is saying on the front row. That's that black woman. Mother of civilization. Queen of the planet Earth. Goddess of the universe. All black men, we've been blessed. You leave Susie Rottenwickle alone. Give me a black goddess sister. I can't resist her. No blonde hair, blue-eyed, pale skin, buttermilk complexion, recessive, depressive, straight up but straight down. Miss Sister Clock, no frills, no thrills. Euthanoids, punkasoids, subject to have the itch. White cave bitch. Not for me. Give me the black woman. Give me the black woman. divine gift to us. She keeps us warm in the wintertime. She keeps us cool in the summertime. And keeps us hot all year round. <laughs> I love you, brothers and sisters. I hope this letter finds you in good health, in good disposition, and enveloped with the spirit of goodness. I must confess that it had never occurred to me before to write you, and I find myself overwhelmed and moved to have this opportunity. Although circumstances have compelled me to reach out to you, I am glad to have this occasion to try and cross the boundaries that would otherwise tend to separate us. I understand that the New Jersey State Police have written to you and asked you to intervene and to help facilitate my extradition back to the United States. I believe that their request is unprecedented in history. Since they have refused to make their letter to you public, although they have not hesitated to publicize their request, I am completely uninformed as to the accusations they are making against me. Why, I wonder, do I warrant such attention? What do I represent that is such a threat? Please let me take a moment to tell you about myself. My name is Asada Shakur, and I was born and raised in the United States. I am a descendant of Africans who were kidnapped and brought to the Americas as slaves. I spent my early childhood in the racist, segregated South. I later moved to the northern part of the country where I've realized 
that black people were equally victimized by racism and oppression. I grew up and became a political activist, participating in student struggles, the anti-war movement, and most of all, in the movement for the liberation of African Americans in the United States. I later joined the Black Panther Party, an organization that was targeted by the COINTELPRO program, a program that was set up by the Federal Bureau of Investigation to eliminate all political opposition to the U.S. government's policies, to destroy the black liberation movement in the United States, to discredit activists, and to eliminate potential leaders. Under the COINTELPRO program, many political activists were harassed, imprisoned, murdered, or otherwise neutralized. As a result of being targeted by COINTELPRO, I, like many other young people, was faced with the threat of prison, underground, exile, or death. The FBI, with the help of local police agencies, systematically fed false accusations and fake news articles to the press, accusing me and other activists of crimes we did not commit. Although in my case the charges were eventually dropped or I was eventually acquitted, the national and local police agencies created a situation where based on their false accusations against me, any police officer could shoot me on sight. It was not until the Freedom of Information Act was passed in the mid-70s that we began to see the scope of the United States government's persecution of political activists. At this point, I think that it is to make one thing very clear. I have advocated, and I still advocate, revolutionary changes in the structure and in the principles that govern the United States. I advocate self-determination for my people and for all oppressed people inside the United States. I advocate an end to capitalist exploitation, the abolition of racist policies, the eradication of sexism, and the elimination of political repression. If that is a crime, then I am totally guilty. To make a long story short, I was captured in New Jersey in 1973 after being shot with both arms held in the air and then shot again from the back. I was left on the ground to die, and when I did not, I was taken to a local hospital where I was threatened, beaten, and tortured. In 1977, I was convicted in a trial that can only be described as a legal lynching. In 1979, I was able to escape with the aid of some of my fellow comrades. I saw this as a necessary step, not only because I was innocent of the charges against me, but because I knew that the racist legal system in the United States, I would receive no justice. I was also afraid that I would be murdered in prison. I later arrived in Cuba, where I am currently living in exile as a political refugee. The New Jersey State Police 
and other law enforcement officials say they want to see me brought to justice. But I would like to know what they mean by justice. Is torture justice? I was kept in solitary confinement for more than two years, mostly in men's prisons. Is that justice? My lawyers were threatened with imprisonment and imprisoned. Is that justice? I was tried by an all-white jury without even the pretext of impartiality and then sentenced to life in prison plus 33 years. Is that justice? Let me emphasize that justice for me is not the issue I am addressing here. It is justice for my people that is at stake. When my people receive justice, I am sure that I will receive it too. I know that your holiness will reach your own conclusions, but I feel compelled to present the circumstances surrounding the application of so-called justice in New Jersey. I am not the first or the last person to be victimized by the New Jersey system of justice. The New Jersey State Police are infamous for their racism and brutality. Many legal actions have been filed against them. And just recently, in a class action legal proceeding, the New Jersey State Police were found guilty of having an, quote, officially sanctioned de facto policy of targeting minorities for investigation and arrest. Unquote. Although New Jersey's population is more than 78% white, more than 75% of the prison population is made up of blacks and Latinos. 80% of women in New Jersey prisons are women of color. There are 15 people on death row in the state, and seven of them are black. A 1987 study found that New Jersey prosecutors sought the death penalty in 50% of cases involving a black defendant and a white victim, but only 28% of cases involving a black defendant and a black victim. Unfortunately, the situation in New Jersey is not unique, but reflects the racism that permeates the entire country. The United States has the highest rate of incarceration in the world. There are more than 1.7 million people in U.S. prisons. This number does not include the more than 500,000 people in city and county jails, nor does it include the alarming number of children in juvenile institutions. The vast majority of those behind bars are people of color, and virtually all of those behind bars are poor. The result of this reality is devastating. One-third of black men between the ages of 20 and 29 are either in prison or under the jurisdiction of the criminal justice system. Prisons are big business in the United States, and the building, running, and supplying of prisons has become the fastest-growing industry in the country. 
factories are moving into the prisons, and prisoners are forced to work for slave wages. This super-exploitation of human beings has meant the institutionalization of a new form of slavery. Those who cannot find work on the streets are forced to work in prison. Not only are the prisons used as instruments of economic exploitation, they also serve as instruments of political repression. There are more than 100 political prisoners in the United States. They are African Americans, Puerto Ricans, Chicanos, Native Americans, Asians, and progressive white people who oppose the policies of the United States government. Many of those targeted by the COINTELPRO program have been in prison since the early 1970s. Although the situation in prisons is an indication of human rights violations inside the United States, there are other, more deadly indicators. Currently, 3,365 people now on death row, and more than 50% of those awaiting death are people of color. Black people make up only 13% of the population but we make up 41.01% of persons who have received the death penalty. The number of state assassinations has increased drastically. In 1997 alone, 71 people were executed. A special rapporteur appointed by the United Nations Organization found serious human rights violations in the United States, especially related to the death penalty. According to his findings, people who are mentally ill were sentenced to death, people with severe mental and learning disabilities, as well as minors under 18. Serious racial bias was found on the part of judges and prosecutors. Specifically mentioned in the report was the case of Mamiya Abu-Jamal, the only political prisoner on death row, who was sentenced to death because of his political beliefs and because of his work as a journalist exposing police brutality in the city of Philadelphia. I believe that some people spell God with one O, while others spell it with two. What we call God is unimportant as long as we do God's work. There are those who want to see God's wrath fall on the oppressed and not on the oppressors. I believe that the time has ended when slavery, colonialism, and oppression can be carried out in the name of religion. It was in the dungeons of prison that I felt the presence of God up close, and it has been my belief in God and in the goodness of human beings that has helped me to survive. I am not ashamed of having been in prison, and I am certainly not ashamed of having been a political prisoner. I believe that Jesus was a political prisoner who was executed because he fought against the evils of the Roman Empire, because he fought against the greed of the money changers in the temple, 
because he fought against the sins and injustices of his time. As a true child of God, Jesus spoke up for the poor, for the meek, for the sick, and the oppressed. The early Christians were thrown into lion's dens. I will try to follow the example of so many who have stood up in the face of overwhelming oppression. I am not writing to ask you to intercede on my behalf. I ask nothing for myself. I only ask you to examine the social reality of the United States and to speak out against the human rights violations that are taking place. On this day, the birthday of Martin Luther King, I am reminded of all those who gave their lives for freedom. Most of the people who live on this planet are still not free. I ask only that you continue to work and pray to end oppression and political repression. It is my heartfelt belief that all the people on this earth deserve justice, social justice, political justice, and economic justice. I believe it is the only way we will ever achieve peace and prosperity on this earth. I hope that you enjoy your visit to Cuba. This is not a country that is rich in material wealth, but it is a country that is rich in human wealth, spiritual wealth, and moral wealth. Respectfully yours, Asada Shakur, Havana, Cuba. Good evening. This is Charles Collingsworth at the White House in Washington, D.C. For many of you, this will be your first visit to this historical landmark. Our tour through these hallowed halls will be conducted by the First Lady.
Joanne Chesimard. Have you heard of my sister? Asada Shakur. A political prisoner. She is looked upon now as a domestic terrorist. I met her when I was in Cuba. I talked with my sister. She terrorizes nobody. Why then would the Justice Department of the government of the United States make this sister a domestic terrorist. Here's what Joanne Chesimard said. I'm using her slave name, but I'm going to quote something from her. Her real name, that is an African name, uh, Asata Shakur. She said that it means one who struggles, who fights for her people. She's now 65 years of age. They are offering $2 million for her capture. And now that she's labeled as a domestic terrorist, will our government find out where she lives and send a drone to kill her? Will you send people into Cuba to try to harm her and bring her back to America as a domestic terrorist? Listen to what she said. I had long ago become convinced that revolution was a science. Generalities were no longer enough for me. Like my comrades, I believed that a higher level of political sophistication was necessary and that unity in the black community had become a priority. We could never afford to forget the lessons we had learned from the counterintelligence program of the United States government. As far as I was concerned, building a sense of national consciousness was one of the most important tasks that lay ahead of us. I couldn't see how we could seriously struggle without having a strong sense of collectivity without being responsible for and to each other. She went on to say, hip-hop can be a very powerful weapon. It was so powerful. I'm digressing from her words that the enemy sought to turn it from a weapon of consciousness for our people into a weapon that glorified thug life, that glorified drug life, 
that glorified where the enemy had placed us in what Dr. King called a sanctuary of criminal activity. She goes on to say, the government recognized immediately that rap music has enormous revolutionary potential. Certain politicians got on the bandwagon to attack rappers like Sister Soldier. Do you remember her? And NWA. You've got various police organizations across the country that have openly expressed their hostility toward rap artists. For them, most rappers fall in the category of potential criminals, cop killers, or subversives. Sister Asada Shakur says, I am a black revolutionary woman, and because of this, I have been charged with and accused of every alleged crime in which a woman was believed to have participated. The alleged crimes in which only men were supposedly involved. I have been accused of planning. They have plastered pictures alleged to be me in post offices, airports, hotels, police cars, subways, banks, television and newspapers. They have offered at that time of her writing over $50,000 in rewards for my capture and now as I forestated, their reward is $2 million. And they have issued orders to shoot on sight and shoot to kill. Let me ask a question. What happened in the Justice Department that you would label my sister? a domestic terrorist? What did she do? She's been in Cuba for nearly 30 years. Who did she terrorize? Who did she involve in a plot to overthrow this government that you could label her a domestic terrorist? My, my, my. Some of you have said you believe that she's been feeding stuff to people that are against the government of America. You believe? You don't classify people on a belief. You classify people on actual facts. What are the actual facts of our sister? living in Cuba because she can't come back to the place of her birth because of what you have falsely labeled her. I am really disappointed that our president and our Justice Department under Mr. Holder would allow our sister to be named a domestic terrorist. Oh, 
negativity, I push down your real strong. It's like black woman, I love themselves no more. She said she don't mind being called on. No black woman, what up you went black woman? Are you on the mother on the earth, black woman? Yeah, I tell them, tell you, black woman. Yes, black woman, you're worth more. The more you want, you want to catch up and broke from back. Back it up and chop right out and grow up. Tell them you have more body parts and not just under you. Them now have no right to rape you, kick to drape you. Don't allow them to strip you naked. That flower that you have is an orchid. No trade it for no fish and chips. Point your fingers to the skies with a quillacar. So take your up up up. CIA financed feminism. The CIA also financed LBGTism. Up until 
1973-1974, homosexuality was considered a mental illness for all of American history, for all of American history. It was not a coincidence that it was depathologized by the American Psychiatric Association in the early 70s. This was in direct response to the agenda to destroy black civil rights. Let us be clear. Dr. King was a genius because Dr. King was able to keep the black agenda at the forefront of American public discussion. No other black leader since King, regardless of what people think of him, was able to keep the black agenda at the forefront of American public discussion. King did that. In order to crush the black power movement, they had to find another movement to replace it. Feminism has helped to push the black agenda to the side. LBGTism has helped to push the black agenda to the side. And as you said, I love all my brothers and sisters. Gay, straight, whatever box you in, you still family. But I can agree to disagree with your behavior if it contradicts the best interests of our community. The question asked, can Don Lemon or any other prominent homosexual African-American brother or African-American lesbian sister be the forefront of the black movement for liberation? My answer is no. And the reason my answer is no is twofold. Number one, the LBGT movement was created to crush and eclipse the black agenda. So if you belong and identify publicly and proudly with the movement that is a government creation to crush the authenticity of the black liberation struggle, how can you serve two masters? That doesn't mean you can't be used or cannot work for the best interests of your people, but you cannot lead it because that means you run the risk of co-opting our best interests for the best interests of the LBGT platform. So no, you can't. And second, more importantly for me, black children look up to us as spokespersons. So when a black boy looks up to a homosexual black male, for me there's a little bit of a problem in that because I want him to see in manhood the need to love a black woman. And if he sees a black man loving another male, then if that man is his role model, he might begin to accept and even explore the type of relationship that's being role modeled for him. So for us to protect our community, where only one out of every four black women gets married, they're the last married and the first divorced. Most black women will never get a husband. Most of our children are doomed to live their childhood in single parented homes. If we want to kill that, then there's no way we can validate homosexuality as a relationship option in the black community. Fall up back when she hit your nappy room. 
with that creamy crack. Well, they brought her to a land far away from Africa, so she covered up her natural road to pick the cotton bird. They kept her in a field. She kept her scarf on, emancipation came, and it made her straight and calm. She brought it to the side, she had to compromise, so she could feed her children, scrubbing floors for the white. Today your mammy get a China man, a lot of racks, cause she loves a Remy weave, and a monkey hair hat hair. Who lost your daddy on a slave boat? Your mammy now. Who got that yakky looking train? Your mammy
man say, well, well, we outnumbered. He got more guns than we got. Oh, black woman, you in trouble when you got a black man talking like that. You mean to tell me that your woman is in a house being raped by 20 men and they got 20 guns and you ain't got but one gun and you gonna just go and cry and leave her in there being abused and misused and say, they got more guns than I got. I can't go in there. If you got a man like that, goddammit, you ain't got no man. You might as well get rid of him. You ain't got no man. A real man has got to face it. A real man has got to determine the strategy for going in there and getting his woman out and taking some of the enemy out. That's a real man. To understand this, you have to go back to what young brother here referred to as the house Negro and the field Negro back during slavery. There was two kinds of slaves. There was the house Negro and the field Negro. The house Negro, they lived in the house with master. They dressed pretty good. They ate good because they ate his food. What he left. <laughs> they lived in the attic or the basement, but still they lived near their master. And they loved their master more than the master loved himself. They would, they would give their life to save their master's house quicker than the master would. The house Negro, if the master said, we got a good house here, the house Negro said, yeah, we got a good house here. Whenever the master said we, he said we. That's how you can tell a house Negro. If the master's, if the master's house caught on fire, the house Negro would fight harder to put the blaze out than the master would. If the master got sick, the house Negro would say, what's the matter, boss? We sick. We sick. <laughs> he identified himself with his master more than his master identified with himself. And if you came to the house Negro and said, let's run away, let's escape, let's separate, that house Negro would look at you and say, man, you crazy. What you mean separate? Where is there a better house than this? Where can I wear better clothes than this? Where can I eat better food than this? That was that house Negro. In those days, he was called a house nigger. And that's what we call him today because we still got some house niggers running around here. <laughs> this modern house Negro loves his master. He wants to live near him. He'll pay three times as much as the house is worth just to live near his master. And then brag about, I'm the only Negro out here. <laughs> I'm the only one on my job. I'm the only one in this school, you nothing but a house Negro. And if someone come to you right now and say, let's separate, you say the same thing that the house Negro said on the plantation. What you mean separate? From America? 
this good white man? Where you going to get a better job than you get here? I mean, this is what you say. I, I ain't left nothing in Africa. That's what you say. Why, you left your mind in Africa. On that same plantation, there was the field Negro. The field Negro, those were the masses. There was always more Negroes in the field than there was Negroes in the house. The Negro in the field caught hell. He ate leftovers. In the house, they ate high up on the hull. The Negro in the field didn't get nothing but what was left of the insides of the hog. They call them chitlins nowadays. <laughs> in those days, they call them what they were, guts. That's what you were, a gut eater. And some of you are all still gut eaters. The field Negro was beaten from morning till night. He lived in a shack, in a hut. He wore cast off clothes. And he hated his master. I say he hated his master. He was intelligent. That house Negro loved his master. But that field Negro, remember, they were in the majority. And they hated the master. When the house caught on fire, he didn't try and put it out. That field Negro prayed for a wind, <laughs> for a breeze. When the master got sick, the field Negro prayed that he died. If someone come to the field Negro and said, let's separate, let's run, he didn't say, where are we going? He said, any place is better than here. You got field Negroes in America today. I'm a field Negro. The masses are the field Negroes. When they see this man's house on fire, you don't hear these little Negroes talking about our government is in trouble. They say the government is in trouble. Imagine a Negro, our government, I even heard one say, our astronauts. They won't even let him near the plant. And our astronauts, our Navy, that's a Negro that's out of his mind. That's a Negro that's out of his mind. Just as the slave master in that day used Tom, the house Negro, to keep the field Negroes in check, the same old slave master today has Negroes who are nothing but modern Uncle Toms, 20th century Uncle Toms, to keep you and me in check, keep us under control, keep us passive and peaceful and nonviolent. That's Tom making you nonviolent. It's like when you go to the dentist 
and the man is going to take your tooth. You're going to fight him when he starts pulling. So they squirt some stuff in your jaw called Novocaine to make you think they're not doing anything to you. <laughs> so you sit there and because you got all that Novocaine in your jaw, you suffer peacefully. <laughs> Blood running all down your jaw. And you don't know what's happening. Because someone has taught you to suffer peacefully. The white man do the same thing to you in the street. When he going to want to put knots on your head and take advantage of you and don't have to be afraid of you fighting back, to keep you from fighting back, he get these old religious Uncle Toms to teach you and me that just like Novocaine, suffer peacefully. Don't stop suffering, just suffer peacefully. As Reverend Cleve pointed out, let your blood flow in the streets. This is a shame. And you know he's a Christian preacher. If it's a shame to him, you know what it is to me. nothing in our book, the Koran, as you call it, Koran, teaches us to suffer peacefully. Our religion teaches us to be intelligent, be peaceful, be courteous, obey the law, respect everyone. But if someone puts his hand on you, send them to the cemetery. That's a good religion. In fact, that's that old-time religion. That's the one that Ma and Pa used to talk about. An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth, and a head for a head, and a life for a life. That's a good religion. And then anybody, no one resents that kind of religion being taught but a wolf who intends to make you his meal. This is the way it is with the white man in America. He's a wolf, and you a sheep. Anytime a shepherd, a pastor, teach you and me not to run from the white man, and at the same time teachers don't fight the white man, He's a traitor to you and me. Don't lay down our life all by itself. No. Preserve your life. It's the best thing you got. And if you got to give it up, let it be even Stephen. The slave master took Tom and dressed him well and fed him well and even gave him a little education, a little education. Gave him a long coat and a top hat and made all the other slaves look up to him. Then he used Tom to control them. The same strategy that was used in those days is used today. 
by the same white man. He take a Negro, so-called Negro, and make him prominent, build him up, publicize him, make him a celebrity, and then he becomes a spokesman for Negro and a Negro leader. I would like to just mention one thing else quickly, and that is the, the uh, method that the white man uses, how the white man uses these big guns or Negro leaders against the black revolution. They are not a part of the black revolution. They're used against the black revolution. When Martin Luther King failed to desegregate Albany, Georgia, the civil rights struggle in America reached its low point. King became bankrupt almost as a leader. Plus, even financially, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference was in financial trouble. Plus, it was in trouble, period, with the people when they failed to uh, desegregate Albany, Georgia. Other Negro civil rights leaders of so-called national stature became fallen idols. As they became fallen idols, begin to lose their prestige and influence, local Negro leaders begin to stir up the masses. In Cambridge, Maryland, Gloria Richardson. In Danville, Virginia, and other parts of the country, local leaders begin to stir up our people at the grassroots level. This was never done by these Negroes whom you recognize of national stature. They controlled you, but they never incited you or excited you. They controlled you. They contained you. They kept you on the plantation. As soon as King failed in Birmingham, Negroes took to the streets. King got out and went out to California to a big rally and raised about, I don't know how many thousands of dollars. Come to Detroit and had a march and raised some more thousands of dollars. And recall, right after that, Wilkins attacked King, accused King and the Corps of starting trouble everywhere and then making the NAACP get him out of jail and spend a lot of money. And then he accused King and Corps of raising all the money and not paying it back. This happened. I got it in documented evidence in the newspaper. Roy started attacking King, and King started attacking Roy, and Farmer started attacking both of them. And as these Negroes of national stature begin to attack each other, they begin to lose their control of the Negro masses. And Negroes was out there in the streets. They was talking about, we're going to march on Washington. By the way, and right at that time, Birmingham had exploded, and the Negroes in Birmingham, remember, they also exploded. They began to stab the crackers in the back and bust them upside the head. Yes, they did. That's when Kennedy sent in the troops down in Birmingham. So, and right after that, Kennedy got on the television and said, this is a moral issue. That's when he said he's going to put out a civil rights bill. And when he mentioned civil rights bill and the Southern crackers started talking about they were going to boycott it or filibuster, then the Negroes started talking about what? We're going to march on Washington, march on the Senate, march on the White House, march on the Congress and tie it up, bring it to a halt. Don't let the government proceed. They even said they were going to go out to the airport and lay down on the runaway and don't let no airplanes land. I'm telling you what they said. That was revolution. 
There was revolution. There was the black revolution. It was the grassroots out there in the street. Scared the white man to death. Scared the white power structure in Washington, D.C. to death. I was there. When they found out that this black steamroller was going to come down on the Capitol, they called in Wilkins. They called in Randolph. They called in these national Negro leaders that you respect and told them, call it off. Kennedy said, look, y'all letting this thing go too far. And old Tom said, boss, I can't stop it because I didn't start it. I'm telling you what they said. They said, I'm not even in it, much less at the head of it. They said, these Negroes are doing things on their own. They're running ahead of us. And that old shrewd fox, he said, well, if you all aren't in it, I'll put you in it. I'll put you at the head of it. I'll endorse it. I'll welcome it. I'll help it. I'll join it. The very, a matter of hours went by. They had a meeting at the Carlisle Hotel in New York City. The Carlisle Hotel is owned by the Kennedy family. That's the hotel Kennedy spent the night at two nights ago. Belongs to his family. A, a philanthropic society headed by a white man named Stephen Currier called all the top civil rights leaders together at the Carlisle Hotel and told them that by you all fighting each other, you're destroying the civil rights movement. And since you're fighting over money from white liberals, let us set up what's known as the Council for United Civil Rights Leadership. Let's form this council, and all the civil rights organizations will belong to it, and we'll use it for fundraising purposes. Let me show you how tricky the white man is. And as soon as they got it formed, they elected uh, uh, Whitney Young as the chairman. And who you think became the co-chairman? Stephen Currier, the white man. A millionaire. Powell was talking about it down at the Cobo today. This is what he was talking about. Powell knows it happened. Randolph knows it happened. Wilkins knows it happened. King knows it happened. Every one of that so-called big six, they know what happened. Once they formed it with the white man over it, he promised them and gave them $800,000 to split up between the big six and told them that after the march was over, they'd give them 700,000 more. A million and a half dollars split up between leaders that you've been following, going to jail for, crying crocodile tears for, and they nothing but Frank James and Jesse James and uh, what you call it, brothers. <laughs> Soon as they, they got the setup organized, the white men made available to them top public relations experts, opened the news media across the country at their disposal, and then they began to project these big six as the leaders of the march. Originally, they weren't even in the march. You was talking this march talk on Haston Street. Is Haston Street still here? On Haston Street. 
you were talking to Marx, talk on Lenox Avenue, and down on uh, what you call it, Fillmore Street, and Central Avenue, and 42nd Street, and 63rd Street. That's where the Marx talk was being talked. But the white man put the big six ahead of it, made them the Marx. They became the Marx. They took it over. And the first move they made after they took it over, they invited Walter Ruther, a white man. They invited a priest, a, uh, a rabbi, and an old white preacher. Yes, an old white preacher. The same white element that put Kennedy in power labored the Catholics, the Jews and liberal Protestants. Same clique that put Kennedy in power joined the March on Washington. It's just like when you got some coffee that's too black, which means it's too strong. What you do? You integrate it with cream. <laughs> You make it weak. If you pour uh, too much cream in, you won't even know you ever had coffee. It used to be hot, it becomes cool. It used to be strong, it becomes weak. It used to wake you up, now it'll put you to sleep. This is what they did with the March on Washington. They joined it. They didn't integrate it. They infiltrated it. They joined it, became a part of it, took it over. And as they took it over, it lost its militancy. They ceased to be angry. They ceased to be hot. They ceased to be uncompromising. Why, it even ceased to be a march. It became a picnic, a circus. Nothing but a circus with clowns and all. You had one right here in, in Detroit. I saw it on television with clowns leading it, white clowns and black clowns. I know you don't like what I'm saying, but I'm going to tell you anyway because I can prove what I'm saying. If you think I'm telling you wrong, you bring me Martin Luther King and A. Philip Randolph and James Farmer and uh, those other three and see if they'll deny it over the microphone. No, it was a sellout. It was a takeover. When James Baldwin came in from Paris, they wouldn't let him talk because they couldn't make him go by the script. Bert Lancaster read the speech that Baldwin was supposed to make. They wouldn't let Baldwin get up there because they know Baldwin liable to say anything. They controlled it so tight, they told those Negroes what time to hit town. How to come, where to stop, what sign to carry, what song to sing, what speech they could make and what speech they couldn't make, and then told them to get out of town by sundown. <laughs> and every one of those times were out of town by sundown. Now, I know you don't like my saying this, but I can back it up. It was a circus, a performance. It beat anything Hollywood could ever do.
the performance of the year. Ruther and those other three devils should get an Academy Award for the best actors because they acted like they really loved Negroes and fooled a whole lot of Negroes. And the six Negro leaders should get a, or an award, too, for the best supporting cast. Bang on that. 
new day for a new nigga and leaders can follow. This is in fact the truth, motherfucker. Hell the God, not the house. Nigga, look at these house. Nigga, look at these house. Nigga, look at these hoes. Somebody, you fucking broke. New black hoes, MDO. New black hoes, MDO. New black hoes, MDO. The wall about to come down on Hollywood niggas Cause the crackers be the publishers and major distributors The best advice Wendy they could give to a rapper Is keep the game away from these satanic crackers Just be getting endorsements cause he ain't talking about nothing Just hating on his black brothers and Eminem loving Ozone magazine, the new master in arms When we should support hot block and rock harder I'm the rebel in the cotton field who took the red pill The snitch is told yeah, we been had those Just like a Christian boy fucker Took the womb off the op House niggas took the black goddess out of hip hop Pick up your nuts cause they get cut If you rot in the fist Don't trust that nigga in the rap industry All you crab motherfuckers Buying ads from Ozone Cause you love the cracker Play the bastard dog to the bone Hit you a house Nigga, look at these house Nigga, look at these house Nigga Look at these hoes, somebody, you fucking broke. New black hoes, MDO. New black hoes, MDO. New black hoes, MDO. Yo, somebody, you fucking broke. If you join the enemy, you become the enemy. So wicked smiling is not a friend to weep. These Harvey old enough to be my daddy. They got morning mystery shows to keep your brain on me. If you see a church pimp, ask him about commit. If he tell you about Jesus, get him out your city. T.D. Jakes got black people up to their neck in a magnificent line. Fairy tales on set, cause Jesus is Horus and Horus is the sun. Emotions got you giving your bill money to Eddie Long. Them niggas know we was bringing white boys out of caves and teaching them all things before we were slaves. This you a house, nigga. Look at these house, nigga. Look at these house, nigga. Look at these hoes. Somebody, you fucking broke. New black hoes, MBO. New black hoes, MBO. New black hoes, MBO. Yo, somebody, you fucking broke. Came to us in the person of Master Farad Muhammad to whom praise is due forever. And we thank that one God for raising up his messenger and his Messiah, the most honorable Elijah Muhammad. And we thank the two of them for the man who is anointed and appointed for this hour of our resurrection and our rise, the champion of the liberation and salvation of the black nation, I speak of none other than the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan in the name of Master Farad Muhammad, the Most Honorable Elijah Muhammad, and the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan. I greet you, my beloved and beautiful black sisters and brothers and others, <laughs> with the greeting words of peace. Assalamu alaikum. 
Hotep. Alafia. Free the land. What's up? And black laws for all black people. It is indeed my honor to be a part of history. It is indeed my honor to be a part of us writing history here tonight at Howard University and to be the guest of Unity Nation headed up by that great student warrior. He's not selling drugs. He's not a young man who can be found in the highways and byways of America actually involved in crime that the white man has set up for young black men and women to participate in, but he's a freedom fighter. He's a young student that is standing up for the liberation of his people and fighting for his people's resurrection and rise. <laughs> Unity Nation now catching on all across the nation. Student organizations represented here tonight from Texas, from California, from Georgia, from throughout the Midwest and throughout the Eastern Seaboard. And so to be a part of this evening at this Black Holocaust Memorial, to Brother Malik Zulu Shabazz, our host, to Dr. Tony Martin, Dr. Steve Coakley, Dr. Leonard Jeffries, to the representative of the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan, in this city of Washington, D.C., Minister Sean Muhammad, to our regional minister, Dr. and Minister Arif Muhammad, a graduate of the Howard University Law School, to that great fighter who has laid a foundation in this area, Minister and Dr. Aleem Muhammad, to Minister Fariz Hadi, representing the Honorable Silas Muhammad. And I don't know if he is present, but our great elder, Dr. Robert Brock, Brother James Cameron, Sheikh Shabazz, Brother Duno, and others who have fought for us in this great struggle. In the Hall of Remembrance of the Jewish Holocaust Memorial, as my young son Farrakhan, who is seated here, give him a black hand, and Brother Malik, and Brother Malik, Zulu Shabazz and others who were with us as we stood in the Hall of Remembrance of the Holocaust Memorial. Thank you, son. We read the inscription on the wall of the Hall of Remembrance of the Jewish Holocaust Memorial. And let these words be imprinted on our hearts and in our minds here tonight. Only guard yourself and guard your soul carefully, lest you forget the things your eyes saw, and lest these things depart your heart all the days of your life, and you shall make them known to your children and to your children's children. I say the same for what you have heard and seen and will see here tonight. These esteemed scholars who have come before me, they have busted the statistics and dropped the realistics and now I'm going to kick the ballistics. <laughs> we set forth here tonight that the black holocaust is 100 times worse 
than the so-called Jew Holocaust. Why do we even need to make a comparison? Because it was all no good president but to Jimmy Carter who stepped out and stepped forward when they were beginning to prepare to build the Jewish Holocaust Memorial. It was Jimmy Carter who said that it was the most unspeakable crime in the history of all time. He made a statement of comparison. When we deal with General David Eisenhower, General David Eisenhower made similar statements that we read and we saw on the walls of the Jewish Holocaust Memorial yesterday, making the world to believe that this is the, was the most overpowering crime and atrocity against humankind in the history of all times. Everyone has come and said that it is the worst Holocaust that has ever existed, but all of a sudden when we come out on you, you now back down and claim that you never made a comparison. Well, tonight I'm going to make a comparison. We're going to lay the case out and see which Holocaust is the most dreadful, which Holocaust is the most vicious and bestial Holocaust, most bloody Holocaust ever recorded in the annals of time, but you want to deny us because you owe us reparations and you don't want to pay up today. The so-called Jew Holocaust. And I say so-called Jew because he's not a real Jew. He's a Johnny-come-lately Jew who just crawled out of the caves and hills of Europe just a few days ago. So you're not even a real Jew, buddy. The so-called Jew Holocaust lasted, you with me? Because i got to drop this stuff tonight because I'm a truth terrorist. I'm a knowledge gangster. I'm a black history hitman. I'm a lie killer urban gorilla. i got to be a roughneck. Got to be a roughneck. It's the only way I know to go. Holocaust lasted 10 years, but the Holocaust of the black man and woman lasted over 500 years. Let's look at it. One 10 years, one 500 years. Maybe I'm a little confused. Maybe I'm too much of a racist. Maybe I'm too much of a bigot and an anti-Semite when I'm really none of that. But maybe just by chance, 10 years is greater than 500 years. Let's kick the ballistics. You say you lost 6 million, and we question that. You say you lost 6 million, but for the sake of argument, we'll give you 6 million. We lost over 600 million lives in the African, the Black Holocaust over the past 6,000 years and over the past 400 to 500 years in specific. Maybe I'm a little bit confused. Maybe I'm too big a racist or an anti-Semite or a bigot. And maybe somehow 6 million is greater than 600 million. That possibility is there. You have your Schindler's List. 
which is really a swindler's lip because you were involved in the slave trade. You were involved and you don't want to actually accept your involvement because you too want to escape reparations. You want to escape reparations and what is due the black man and black woman. Let's look at it. You talk about the death marches. My guide was a very nice lady, Miss Sarah Bloomfield. She worked very closely with my son, Farrakhan, and I as we were there. And we listened to Miss Bloomfield closely and carefully. We didn't go in for a show. We get, went in to study. We went in to do research. It wasn't a media event. We didn't even allow the media to go in with us so they would be following us around, looking at us every, at everything we were trying to feel and study. My son and I, we looked. Yes, we were sensitive to what we saw, pain and suffering. We're the chosen people of God. We are a spiritual people by nature, and we feel the pain and suffering of any people anywhere on the face of the planet Earth, even the people who helped to put us in this condition. So maybe we need to reevaluate that. My son looked at some of the Germans killing the Jews, so-called Jews, and he said, this is sick, Daddy. And as we looked at it, feeling that, we saw where you talked about the death marches, where the Jews were forced in mass to move from one camp to the next camp, from one ghetto to the next ghetto. But what about the death marches in Africa? What about the sons and daughters of Africa put on desperate death marches for economic gain and financial purposes as we were marched? Hundreds of miles, some of us dying in the heat of the sun, trying to move us from the east coast to the west coast, trying to move us from southern Africa back to a coastal area, or from the northern region to a coastal area. What about the massive death marches that took our lives on the African continent? They said that by the summer of 1942, there were over 400 ghettos, we question that, that the Jews were forced and confined into over 400 ghettos. Well, you might have 400 ghettos in just one state, one county. You are removed from your ghettos of Warsaw and Krakow. You are removed from your ghettos, white Jew. But these, the sons and daughters of Africa, we are still in the ghettos of white America to this very day that we sit here tonight. We are still in our ghettos. You talked about how they had to build overhead sidewalks. The Jews were not allowed to walk with the Germans. They built overhead sidewalks. Well, the black man and the black woman, we were not allowed to walk on the same sidewalk with the crackers. When old snuff dipping tobacco chewing, salt chewing, overall wearing peck of wood was on the sidewalk, we had to jump out in the street 
and let the peck of wood walk on the sidewalk. They even had what was called laughing barrels. If we were talking and something was funny to us, we couldn't even laugh openly. We had to go and open a barrel up. I've seen some of them in Charleston, North, in the Charleston, down in the Carolinas, and stick our head down in the barrel and laugh so that when we came back up in the presence of white folks, we were straight-faced. Let's look at it. You built your Holocaust memorial. Cost over $200 million. That's what Brother Dr. Brock is talking about. That's what Brother James Cameron is talking about in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, who is working to set up the Black Holocaust Museum there because of what happened to him and his pe all of our people. But him in the summer, the month of August of 1930, where he was with his two friends, 16, 18, and 19, accused of raping a white woman, which they did not do. You've seen the picture of the brothers hanging there. And Brother James Cameron was the one of the three that escaped the hangman's noose. And now he is setting up, he is now setting up the Black Holocaust Museum in Milwaukee, and we should work to help him set it up and we should set them up all over America. $200 million to set up your African Holocaust Museum. Because the space should be ours. The two million should be ours. That's the point I'm making. It should be our African Holocaust Museum. But you, with a swindler's list, have swindled us, have stolen our birthright, and now our African Holocaust Museum, you claim it. They told me that you get $21 million yesterday, they said, a year, just for operating expenses alone. $21 million from the government of the United Snakes of America, just for operating expenses. Every year, your Holocaust, you say, took place in Germany, took place thousands of miles for here, but no museum, no Holocaust, no 200 million, no 21 million, not even $1,000, not $1 has been put aside. And our Holocaust took place and is still taking place right here on this soil here in the hell's of North America. You say you were herded away in boxcars. Where's the photo? Bring it around, Brother Steve. You were herded in boxcars. We were brought in the holes of slave ships. You say it was 1619, but white folks do lie. The most honorable Elijah Muhammad and the honorable minister Louis Farrakhan teach us that we came in the year 1555. We didn't come on the Nina, the Pinta, nor the Santa Maria, not that way. And we didn't come on the Mayflower. We didn't land at Plymouth Rock. We got hit in the head with the damn rock. We came in the holes of ships to be made burden bearers for white America, stacked and packed like sardines in a can. 
And like cockroaches in a Coke bottle, we lost over 150 to 200 million black lives just in the Middle Passage, just coming over between Africa and America. We have not only experienced a Holocaust, but we have paid a hell of a cost. I didn't come here tonight to be soft at a Black Holocaust observance. The white folks and the so-called white Jews, you've gotten me busted. And I accept the discipline and the judgment of my spiritual father, leader, teacher, and guide, the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan. There is no division in the nation of Islam. I follow a divine chain of command. I'm saying, oh, there it is. There it is. I follow a divine chain of command, but you've gotten me busted. So I'm no longer national assistant, no longer national spokesman, no, no longer national representative, no longer even a minister in the nation of Islam. So nothing I say now can you attempt to use against God's man, the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan. None of my words can you attempt to use against him. You took a calculated risk that I would turn on my teacher. Thirty years ago, we played out this same history with the history of Minister Malcolm X, El-Hajj, Malik El-Shabazz, Brother Omar Wale, and the most honorable Elijah Muhammad. During the 60s. But the 60s is a nine turned upside down. And these are the 90s. We're going to turn the six of the 60s right side up in the 90s and put a positive period behind that history of Elijah and Malcolm. There is no Malcolm without Elijah, and there is no Khalid without Farrakhan. Make no mistake about it. So you've gotten me busted, but you can't use my words against my teacher and my spiritual father anymore, and you've gotten me busted, and now I'm going to go buck wild on your behind. I'm not giving you no kind of break today. All praise is due to Allah. Go and buck wild on you today. Bring me up here. Bring me up here. I'm going to be like a pit bulldog. And you know when a pit bulldog bites you in your backside. And that's the way I'm going to be on the Jew. That's the way I'm going to be on the rest of these pecker woods and crackers. I came here tonight to be strong. I didn't come to lighten up. I came to tighten up. Didn't come to pin the tail on the donkey. I came to pin the tail on the honky. That's why I'm here tonight. All praise is due to Allah. All praise is due to Allah. Good evening. This is the truth hour. And don't you touch that dial. 
you stay tuned in to the truth hour. I'm going to lock my jaws in the backside of these no good imposter perpetrating the fraud Jews behind and the rest of these crackers behind. And you know when a bulldog bites his jaws locked. And only Farrakhan has the keys to unlock these jaws. Only Farrakhan has the keys to unlock these jaws. Before it's over, you will go to the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan and beg him to put me back on post. She went. Jay West, Jay West, Golly G, Farcan, Farcan, can you get him back on pole? Get him off of us, Farcan, please. Because I don't give a damn about you. I don't care about these damn cameras. I don't care about your newspapers. I don't care what you say about me. I was born to give you hell from the cradle to the grave. That's what I'm born for. All praise is due to Allah. Pastor Jew, beg the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan. Not only will the other white folks beg him, but these half-baked, half-fried, boot-licking, butt-licking, butt-dancing, bamboozled, punkified, sissified, pastorized, homogenized niggers and Uncle Toms will beg him too before it's all over. Oh, boot-licking Major Owens. Oh, boot-licking Charlie Rango. Oh, boot-licking buck-dancing, scratching, shuffling, messy Jesse Jackson. Who keeps, who keeps. I am a somebody. I am a somebody for keep hope alive. I am a somebody. I don't rightly know who the hell I am, but I am somebody. I am a somebody. You can't serve two masters, Jesse Jackson. You're a brilliant black man. We love you, Jesse Lewis Jackson, but you gotta stop boot licking and butt licking and buck dancing and bending over to give evil an opening. What? 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 What after? What after NAFTA? What after NAFTA? Except more white folks' laughter. Green eggs and ham. Green eggs and ham.
I am Sam. Damn. Black people put in slavery. They robbed us of our names, our language, our religion, our culture, our God, our folkways, our mores. Robbed us of the very power of our own being. No Jew on the face of the planet Earth can say that you were robbed of your name, your language, your religion, your culture, your God, your folkways, your mores, your norms. If you do, you're a damn liar. And as Jesus says, the truth is not in you. You make me sick. Always got some old crickly wrinkle cracker that you bring up. Talking about this is one of the Holocaust victims. Dr. Jeffries is a Holocaust victim. My son Farrakhan is a Holocaust victim. Dr. Tony Martin is a Holocaust victim. Our brother, what's your name, brother? Brother who? Brother Jackson Bay is a Holocaust victim. Minister Sean is a Holocaust victim. God damn it, I'm looking at a whole audience full of Holocaust victims. All of you, you and you and you and you and you, all of you are Holocaust victims. Every last one of you is a Holocaust victim. No good, dirty, low-down bastards. my baby is my baby about no Christmas addicts. Christmas addicts was the one who first to die in the American Revolution. The nigga should have died. I teach him about Nat Turner. I teach him about Denmark Vesey. I teach him about Gabriel Prozer. I teach him about Tucson Louverture. I teach him about Henry Christoph. I teach him about Gasoline the Ferocious. 
I teach him about Will, the executor. I teach him about Bookman. I teach him about Nzinga. I teach him about Kandase. I teach him about Queen Ya Asantewa. I teach him about the warriors and the freedom fighters. I teach my baby about Colin Ferguson, who caught the New York Railroad train just a few days ago. And I say to every one of you, if you leave Colin Ferguson in that jail to be beat up by these crackers, and now it has come out by some of the black officers that this happens all the time, where they set black inmates up in these jails and penitentiaries, and in particular there in Nassau County, and pulled all the black officers out and the in black inmates so they could jump on Brother Colin Ferguson because they were mad with him for catching the Long Island train and killing all them white folks. I love Colin Ferguson. I have no official position, so I can say I love him. I love Colin Ferguson. And I say to every one of you with your red, black, and green, your kente cloth, your gay lay, your grand booba, if you will denounce and repudiate and condemn Colin Ferguson, you should never utter the name of Nat Turner again from your mouth because Colin Ferguson is a modern-day Nat Turner. He didn't get on that train of his own. God put him on that train. God spoke to Nat Turner. God spoke to Denmark V. God spoke to Colin Ferguson and say, I want you to catch the Long Island train today. Let the church say amen. Let the church say amen again. Let the church say amen one more time. God spoke to Colin Ferguson and said, catch the train. Catch the train. Catch the train today, Colin. The train. Going to Long Island. God sends tornadoes. Is that right? God sends hurricanes, is that right? God sends earthquakes, is that right? Well, that day God sent Colin Ferguson, is that right? God sent Colin Ferguson. If your Holocaust lasted 10 years and ours lasted 500, how can you compare, buddy? If you lost 6 million and we lost 600 million, that's 100 times more than you. How can you compare, buddy? Huh? If you never lost your name, your language, your religion, your culture, your God, your folkways, your mores, your norms, and in most cases, they haven't lost your mind the way we have. How can you even compare? You are so arrogant. We wouldn't even have to have this kind of discussion if you would just act like a human being. But you can't act like a human being. You can't even act like a human being. We looked at white Germans killing white so-called Jews and other poor white Europeans, poor meaning poor. We said, man, if the white man will kill another white man like that, if the white man will kill a white baby like that, if the white man will kill a white woman like that, hell, we don't stand a chance. If he will do his own like that, we don't even stand a chance. While we were there, I tried to separate Hitler from the rest of white folks. 
Yes, I did. For a moment. For a moment, I tried to say that Hitler was just some freak of nature. That he could be set apart from other white people. But then I said, look at this. Where's the other one? Bring it out, Brother Steve. Four black men. They would sell tickets to burn us alive. They had raffle tickets to determine who would get the ear, who would get the big toe from the right foot, who would get the little toe from the left foot. And this freakish, no good, peckerwood, cracker white man, they all fought over the male organ as to who would take that home. Don't lie and say you didn't. It's the same with your no good freakish rabbi. I read it in the Jerusalem Post. I called out any of your scholars. I saw the little cracker that was in here a little while ago. What was Richard Cohen? Ran out of here like a screaming, flaming faggot. You hide behind these newspapers. I'm sorry, these Jews' papers. You hide behind these Jews' papers in these Jews' rooms that you call newsrooms. And so you have the evening, six o'clock, the five o'clock Jews, I mean news. And the 10 o'clock Jews, I mean news. You want to hide. We call you out to debate. Give us your best mind. Give us the best so-called Jew you got. Give us a whole team of them. Give us a whole uh, forum with nothing but your best mind. But you run from us. You hide from us. And I say to every black man in this audience, when the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan gives the call sometime within a year or so for a million black men to converge on Washington, D.C., not to sing, We Shall Overcome. Every black man should be here. And black woman, if you got a black man who won't go, you should make sure he gets out of the house. You should make sure that he answers the call. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, I was in there honestly because of the spiritual qualities that are in the black man and black woman, God's chosen people. It operates in the revolutionaries, the freedom fighters, the revolutionary scholars, the revolutionary warrior students. It operates in all of us. I was actually trying to set Hitler apart from other white folks. But then I realized that I just couldn't do it. I say they sold tickets. They had excursions, caravans, train rides to see a major sporting event. A nigger lynched today. Two niggers lynched today. Three niggers, four niggers lynched today. Billy Holiday would sing the song of Bessie Smith, one of them about trees in the south with a strange fruit with blood at the root. 
This is the strange fruit. The black man, black woman, Billy Holiday. Take pregnant black women, bring them out in front of other black women, strip them naked. There in the Holocaust, you can stay right there, brother. Right in the Holocaust Memorial, they had piles of shoes, as though I was supposed to be impressed. And they said, well, over in Germany, we have just rooms full of shoes. They took all of the personals of these people from them. Wasn't that cruel? I said, God damn it, we didn't even have shoes. You can't pile no shoes up in a room for us because we didn't even have shoes. When they took us from Africa, they stripped us of our diamonds and our gold and our silver, our material resource, our spiritual resource, and our human resource. And when we came here, most of the time we didn't have shoes. We went barefoot. Huh? Stripped a black woman of whatever little tattered rag she had. Nine months pregnant. Tie up, tie horses to one leg, horses to the other leg, beat the horses, make them run in opposite directions until they rip and pull the black woman apart and the unborn black baby fall from her and a no good cracker would bring another black woman out, her stomach full nine months with the fruit of her womb, take his knife and stick it in her full stomach with the roundness of her stomach, rip it open and Stick his AIDS, syphilis, gonorrhea, hand inside and snatch the unborn black baby from her. Throw it to the ground and crush the baby's head with his boot heel. And make other pregnant black women watch so that the adrenaline of fear would course its way through her veins and bathe her brains and touch the unborn life in her, hoping that the babies would be born. Afraid of a wicked, cruel slave master. Look at this no good bastard. And some of you want to integrate with him. I believe in freedom and independence. I believe in separation and independence. A nation of our own. That's right. A nation of our own. That's the book. Uh, some of you don't want to go nowhere. You want to stay right here with the white man. Freedom and independence. If the founding fathers of America could call for freedom and independence, under conditions that were nowhere near the conditions that we have been and are operating under today, why can't we call for freedom and independence? Our own flag, our own nation, our own government, our own laws. But most of you just want to intellectualize the subject. You think we can read our way out of this? You better read, but you better get up and get ready to get free. Most of you want to sing, we shall overcome. You better add another stanza, we shall overrun. Lift every voice and sing, but you better lift every fist and swing, too. At the same time, if we're going to gain freedom and independence. 
I'm a soldier. I was born that way. I don't care about nothing else but that. But aren't you afraid that you are going to get killed? Jesus, the black revolutionary Messiah said, he or she who seeks to save his life shall lose his life. And he who is willing to give his life or her life shall save their life. But I don't want to die for the cause. I'll kill for the cause. It's the only way we'll get free. But we've got a mighty God that is backing us up today, sending irregular rain, snow, hail, and earthquake, and confusing the government of the white man and the minds of the white man. The Catholic Church admitted their role in slavery. The so-called Jews want to lie. We just were 2% of the population. Don't make no difference what percent you were. 75% of you, two-thirds of you, according to your own Jewish census takers and statistics, were involved in the slave trade. I didn't say 75% of all the slaves were owned by the Jews. I said 75% of the Jews owned slaves. But you put a spin on it and a twist on it to make it seem ridiculous because you're just a liar and the truth is not in you. As Jesus says in the 8th chapter of the book of John, that you are of your father the devil and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. He abode not in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, Jesus said, he's a liar and the father of the lie. And Jesus said that his word had no place in the Jews. Read John starting with the 8th the chapter, starting with the 31st verse. Down, down to the 44th verse. And when I say Jesus up here, I'm not talking about no blonde-haired, blue-eyed, pale skin, buttermilk complexion, white Jesus. I'm talking about a black Jesus. That the Bible says would have nappy hair and his body would be like burnt bronze or brass as though it had been burnt in an oven. Give the white man his white Jesus back, put it in the garbage can, set it out on the corner, and let the garbage man pick it up and take it to the garbage dump. It's a form of spiritual genocide, a form of mental genocide and holocaust. That's right. Forty to fifty million holocaust survivors still in the death camps of America, still in the ghettos of America, still robbed of our names with Harry McGillicuddy, Jim Dandy O'Houlihan, Abraham Lincoln Culpepper, Hattie Mae Hamburger with lettuce and tomatoes on the side. Robbed completely of a knowledge of ourselves. No other people in the annals of time have been so robbed and spoiled. The Bible said these are a people who are robbed and spoiled. They are snared in holes and hidden in prison houses. But we must rise up like Rob. Rise up like Rob. And take on a new life and take on a new birth. I say I criticize the Pope. I don't have any respect for the Pope. The hell you mean I called him a cracker? So damn what? The Pope don't like me. The Pope does not respect my leader and teacher, the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan. He has no respect for the most honorable Elijah Muhammad. And he is one of the perpetrators in our genocide and our current condition. You offer an apology? 
we're sorry. Everybody else gets reparations. Damn Jews get over 70 billion, over 100 billion. But you offer us early an apology. We are so sorry. No. Use your influence to get reparations for us. Use your influence to ease the debt that is strangling and choking the life out of African nations from the World Bank and the IMF and the other MFs. You say, and this is the first time you heard from me on this, and I think you should at a Black Holocaust observance. Well, you called for the death of the men, the women, the children, and the babies. Hell, you had heard that here at Howard University long before King College. Killing our men, our women, our children, and our babies in South Africa have killed them over a long period of time. And so I call for my people to stand up and fight back. And you have a problem with that? Because I said that we don't owe the white man nothing in South Africa. We give him 24 hours to get out of town by Sunday. I don't respect the process. I don't respect the elections process. You don't break in my damn house, bum rush my house, black boots stomp my door down, and then one day I gain the power to take my house back, and now we're going to hold a vote. And I'm so silly, you take the west wing of the house, you can take this wing over here, and any time a dispute comes up here, we will vote on it. One person in this house, one vote. That's a fool. No compromise in South Africa. We don't compromise with the white man in South Africa. You couldn't take America and then turn around and expect the white man to share it with you. Hell, he won't even share it with us when he promised us 40 acres and a mule in 1866 and then turned around and Andrew Johnson vetoed it. No Jew in here has to live under the yoke of bondage and oppression that we still live under and have lived under for the past 500 years. The first president of these United States, these United Snakes, I didn't call it that. Benjamin Franklin used to write in the newspaper. The flag, one of the early flags was a snake for America. When the union was split, the snake was split up. And they talked about uniting the union and putting the snake back together. So and they said, don't tread on me. That was on your flag, white man. So I call you the United Snakes of America. Because that's exactly what it is. As I near, as I near my conclusion here at the Jewish Holocaust Memorial, they talked about books that were a part of the education system under Hitler and talked about a little book called The Poison Mushroom. Well, hell, we got a book called Little Black Sambo. You telling me about a damn poison mushroom? 
Little black Sambo. Dick and Jane were white. The milkman was white. The mailman was white. Huh? The fireman was white. The policeman was white. Mama was white. Daddy was white. The only one that had any black was Spot, and he was black and white. You got the little poison mushroom, but we got little black.